Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. If you're just joining us today, we're in a series, three weeks in, actually, looking at the book of Hebrews, uh, really the end of Hebrews, and there's a small group of Jewish Christians who are experiencing extremely tough times. And the writer of Hebrews, in a very masterful and beautiful way, and I mean, is trying to encourage them along in their journey of faith. And he's pressing them, get to the end. And he gives them this vision at the end of the book of, of arriving in a city. It's the vision of a city. Now, the city ends up being a really great image that we'll tease out, you know, every week a little different part of that imagery, but it just signifies energy and life, Uh, busyness, society, security, um, community, achievement, meaning. We're waking up every day and doing life, essentially. And the writer is trying to say, to them that uh, the world that we live in, the city we live in, the life we're trying to lead now ultimately isn't lasting. You need, you need a bigger city. And so we've been seeing this here right in the middle of chapter 13. He reminds us, here we have no lasting city. This is a, simply saying you, you can't ultimately achieve life's purpose. So we seek a city that is to come. One beyond. So that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to give them a picture, a vision of, of the life that Jesus intended us for ha- to have. Now in Hebrews 12 at the end, you get this picture. And these essentially become two, two fundamentally different ways of living. You can spend your life in the city here trying to make a life that's meaningful. Or you can seek the city that is to come. The two approaches to life. Uh, the first one is the achievers. We looked at him at length last week. Uh, he's trying to achieve some kind of significance in this life. Find meaning. Uh, the one down here is a receiver. He, he can't accomplish. This is a city that's going to come that God brings. You read Revelation 21. You see the city that comes out of this guy. This is God's society and his humanity. Different than this one. And so this is one that is received versus achieved. The writer of Hebrews is going to say, you can make your life for yourself if you want, but it's not going to last. It's not lasting. Or you can be given a life. And so we talked about the achievers because sort of in defiance, they try to build their own city, their own life, you know, to prove their worth. That's what it means to seek significance. Uh, Justify your existence. Which is essentially save yourself. And we're all doing this. Uh, John Updike said this. No matter in how many ways our lives are demonstrated to be insignificant. We can only live them as if they were not. 
no matter how you slice it, we're trying to live, trying to find significance. Um, We said that we are incurably moral. And so we're constantly judging and comparing ourselves to other by any, any kind of standard that we can grab onto that makes us feel better than other people. Um, one of the writers that I read this summer had a line and I, I really liked it. He said, this is why society is preoccupied with ensuring that we all get what we deserve. This is why we fight for our rights to get what we deserve. Why? Because we all believe we deserve something. And we're not really sure that all of us are working off the same standard of the deserve. We've created one in our heads. So for instance, uh, I remember telling you about a gal that used to come to Hillside. Um, She was a young gal who told me about her process of moving from an atheist to becoming a Christian. And she said along the journey, and we were emailing back and forth because she eventually told her story here and we were I was trying to get to the, trying to hear it. And she sent me an email and I've kept it. This is um, quite a while ago. She goes, I was, I was seeking God, but I always thought I was a good person. Uh, once I started to believe in God, I thought certainly I'm good enough to go to heaven. I care about my family and friends. I'm generous. I care for the needy. I'm good, she said. I started reading the Bible and realizing I'm, I'm really not that good. She said, as I learned about God's standard, I realized I don't even keep the commandment to the basic ones. I didn't love my neighbors the way I should. I didn't always honor my parents. Very often felt anger and pride. And she said what really tipped her over the edge was that her husband was involved in a prison ministry. Remember her husband wrote her, these prisoners would write letters to her husband. And this one fella said, uh, she quotes him. He says, I've made some mistakes, but overall I'm a good person. And she said his mistakes were he raped and killed 16 prostitutes. So in other words, no matter how bad you've been, you can come up with some standard that makes you feel okay. Like this standard would be somebody out there's killed 17. And I'm a little better. But we all do it. Um, we're all looking for some way to justify ourselves. Uh, uh, but the, the little standard we create helps cover the parts that aren't that holy. Um, Brad Pitt is, read an article this week. He's turned 55 and he just finished filming this movie, Ad Astra, which is about to come out. And uh, he's sort of getting vulnerable because... Um, because you know where his life is personally and professionally. And in the interviewer, he said, uh, he goes, you know, I grew up with that whole mentality of you don't show your weaknesses. You only show strength. This article, he goes, uh, you show that you're capable. And he said, the problem with it is you never really look hard at yourself and take inventory. And you're able to deny all the parts of you that don't measure up to even your own standard. That's a profound insight. Few of us really get to it. And so, you might look good compared to someone, but before God, 
Hebrews told us last week. God's a consuming fire, a holy furnace. And you bring your rickety standards of morality made out of balsa wood before this holy furnace and it disintegrates, it crumbles before him. So we said, Hebrews says, God's gonna shake the earth one day. He's gonna test it, he's gonna shake it, see if it works. And every one of our lives will be shook like this to see if it matches up and all those, all that stuff we've accomplished will mean nothing. We won't pass that test. So it's an overwhelming, terrifying experience. Uh, in fact, he writes here, um, you, will, you will experience fire and darkness. This is the sort of the picture in the text at the end of the book. He says, you can approach God like they did at Mount Sinai, like Israel did in Mount Sinai. But when you get to that mountain, you're going to experience darkness and a burning fire and gloom and a whirlwind, a blast of a trumpet so loud, a voice. You're not going to see God. You're only going to hear a voice. And you're going to beg for him to be quiet. It'll be overwhelming to you. More than your ears overwhelmed the senses. They couldn't bear what was commanded. Not even an animal could get close to the mountain. If an animal couldn't get close to the mountain, it didn't even have a moral fiber to be found. How, how are the rest of us going to get there? The scene was so terrifying, Moses said, I shuddered with fear. This is... You'll never get close if you try to achieve it. Uh, there was a time in Israel's history, uh, in Isaiah chapter 28, when uh, Israel is um, not obeying God and the prophet tells them they're going to experience judgment. And they're a little cocky. They think they can survive the judgment. So maybe that's you. Oh, no, 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 I think I got a good case before God. And that was Israel. And here's how he depicted it. I really liked it. He said, the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. In other words, the bed and blanket that you're hoping to provide you comfort at the judgment will be too short. This is, I want to say this very carefully, short sheeted. The idea is that your feet are going to hang off. There's parts of your body that will hang off and they'll be exposed because the blanket won't be able to cover them and the bed's too short. I used to wake my kids up in the morning when they were little in their pajamas. I did it for all four of them and I used to make up a song every morning based on how I, what I saw in the room. And so I would just come up with something based on something in the room. Well, two of the songs that I, I, I wrote made it to the charts, okay? and they've lasted in the family. They've become part of, I mean, our kids, my kids still sing them today. You can download them on iTunes. Because <laughs> I would walk in inevitably, inevitably. One of them I can't sing to you, okay? One of them I can't. Because one part of their body would be shown, would be their feet hanging out of the covers, and they would always have these little dirt in the nails, you know? You're just seeing the boys... And I would always come in really quietly and I'd start to sing, I can see your dirty feet sticking out of the covers. And that's how I'd wake them up. 
Well, that turned out to be a real worshipful hit because that's exactly what God is saying right here. You see your dirty feet sticking out of the covers. In other words, you're exposed. This is going to be very uncomfortable. And so you're like, okay, achievers. You're not going to have a chance before God. And so the only other approach is to be a receiver. You need something. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this in his little essay, if you want to call it the weight of glory. He says, we'll appear at some point before the face of God. And perhaps some of us might hear the appalling words, I never knew you. Depart from me. And he writes, in some sense, as dark to the intellect as it is, as it is unendurable to the feelings, we can be both banished from the presence of him who is present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we could be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. And then he writes this, and I love the image. We walk every day on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. That is why the main idea of this talk is there's no mission in life that is any greater than learning how to receive this overwhelming grace. To be welcomed in. Not based on anything you've done. Well, then how do you get in? We only know how to earn our way in to anything. Well, what's that look like and how do you get it? Let's see what he says in contrast to the Mount Sinai experience, this terrifying experience. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. Let's just stop there. The, 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 all the way through this book, it's come, draw near, endure, move, obey journey and all of a sudden you get to chapter 12 and there's this, this sense of arrival has happened and it's not easy to communicate what he's trying to say in English this little perfect tense verb which has the idea of you've gotten somewhere and then you live in a state of and he's telling these people who are on this journey, who are seeking a city, in some experiential sense, you have already gotten there. You have already encountered this. And for anyone who has experienced grace, they will understand what it means that you have already come to the city that we're actually still seeking. You haven't arrived there physically. 
But if you experience grace in this life, there is another homeland that you're associated with and you feel all the wonders of them. And that's what he's trying to say here. The future is here. The encounter with Christ is so real that even though you live in a city here that's unstable and it's temporary and there's no security, you can find stability. Another way of saying you can find the thing you've been looking for all your life, significance, meaning, purpose, connection to God. What we want more than anything else to be accepted by God and to be cherished by him. Now he defines this place, sort of a triple designation. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion was the, was the, the hill. I've been there. It's the spot in Jerusalem. It's sort of the, the high point. And you go to it, you know, because everybody can't wait to Zion, you know, you know Jesus is going to return there. It's, the, it's a special spot. All through the Old Testament. That was where God was. So Mount Zion, when you think about Jerusalem and the city and all that's going on, Mount Zion is the special spot where God's presence actually is. And here's what he's saying. People that tried to get to God by achieving, they never came close to the mountain. Here, you'll, because of grace, you'll be ushered right into the spot where God is. The holiest spot. It's called the city of the living God because there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of life there. The one who gives life is there. And it's a city because it's a society. It's a group of people. I join in with a bunch of others who have, who have figured out what life's about. And we go about doing what he wants us to be doing. And it's a heavenly Jerusalem. It's otherworldly. It's something God has to create. We can't make it ourselves. And that's what provides us this unshakable kind of life for meaning and significance. You say, what is it like to live there? Because he says in this text, when God shakes everything, some things will remain. There'll be things that, that do stay, that do last. What does it mean that you get to invest in things? I'll tell you one of the things that happens to people who experience grace and come to this mountain, come to this place, and start living in this sort of new way. Um, Remember what we said at the beginning of the series? We said, you know, all of a sudden you stop trying to get your life together and you start giving it away. People who've come to find grace no longer have to earn their place anywhere. That's the experience. Because your priorities change. This is what we're all looking for. This is the place we've all been looking for. Do you know that every month, a quarter of a million Americans Google the question, what is the meaning of life? Every month. It's because this is what we're all doing. And what he's trying to say here is until you're in the presence of God, until you know him personally, until you've received his grace, It just can't be found. So it changes all your life and your priority. Do you know the freedom that comes in that? Do you experience the freedom of that? 
not having to prove yourself? Because I guarantee you're exhausted by doing it. Trying to manage your image. It's one of the things I can't wait for heaven for. Is that I'm exhausted trying to manage it. How about this? How about the wonder of accepting life's limits? From at some early age, we get hell-bent to find something that just makes everything okay. And we never do. And the people who experience grace They're freed from trying to make earth heaven. They're freed from that. Do you know that freedom? Do you know how to live with the idea that something will always be missing here? You can't do that unless you have found grace and come to this ultimate city. Until you have found God. To realize that if God is all you had, you'd be okay. It's exhausting. We overwhelm everyone in our lives and everything in our lives with demands and expectations to come through for us. And inevitably, everything fails. You ever, you ever, ask, you ever say this? I don't know what I would do if I lost. Usually, you say that when someone in your life has lost something you can't imagine being without. I don't know how I would do it if I lost one of my kids. I don't know what I would do if I lost my job. I don't know what I would do if we lost our retirement funds. I don't know what I would do if I lost my reputation. You're going to lose it all. It's all going away. It's part of the city that doesn't last. So if you're trying to get your meaning and your significance and your life from anything here, I don't care if it's a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a sport, name it. All your life, there'll be different ones. It'll be a possession, it'll be a thing, it'll be an achievement, it'll be something and it'll just never work. And you're either getting your significance in your life from something else, your life imparted to you from someone else, Or you'll just work tirelessly until the end and destroy people along the way. And you know what sin does when we start pursuing things for some? When we sin, we don't only separate ourselves from God, but we always end up with that sense that nobody really loves us for who we really are. And that's what makes sin so horrible. It's not just that it separates you from God, it means that you never really ever are truly lovable. It's a wretched place to live. People who have experienced grace, they, they know differently. And it's not only that, but see, he's not even finished here. Look, into the myriads of angels, uh, not only when we come to this mountain, by the way, there's seven characteristics that you're given in contrast to the Mount Sinai, which has seven characteristics. Right, this is a whole better dynamic. This is much more festive. In fact, there's a little word that fits right here that very few translations actually translate. And it's sort of strange to me. I, I don't, I'm not sure why. Um, but it's angels, the festive 
it's the word festive that fits right here. It's, a, it's only used one time in the New Testament. It's like Paul took the word from outside society and put it in here. And it's the word for party. That's the word. And it's big party. We're talking about massive celebrations. We're talking about after, a, after you win a victory, um, whether military or athletic, we're talking about serious partying here. And we've come to this myriad of angels, this gathering of, this festive gathering is what the assembly is of these angels. Now, uh, this is fascinating because people who experience grace sort of have deep inside, somewhere in their soul, no matter what's going on in the world, because listen, the world is anything but a party. I mean, if it is, it's a sucky one. All right? That's the pessimist in me. Uh, but people who, who experience grace, they sort of, a, they got a little party going on and nobody really sees. You say, what is this kind of party? Well, listen, the angels are here, this myriad of angels. Angels, wherever a lot of angels are, usually God is, because they are always surrounding him. So it's in his presence, there's this party going on, and these angels are around. I don't know if you know much about angels, but these are some uptight beings. Have you looked at, have you thought about their stoic, starchy, sarcastic? They're always on these super special missions. They only give you a little bit of information, then they bail. I mean, you look at it, you watch it. They're, they're, they can be so snobby, holier than thou. And all of a sudden, we we'll get, we'll get the idea of pulling back, and all of a sudden, can you imagine these uptight angels, and they're all just boogieing in the presence of God? They're like, what is going on? We learn the truth about them. They're just celebrating the wonder of grace. It reminds me, how do you get into this party? It reminds me of, you know how you're in the back alley, you know you got to knock on, a, you're in an alley and you got to knock on a door three times and somebody opens a window to see who you are and you got to give them a special password to get in. This is the kind of party that is. And see, here's the beauty of this, that people who've experienced grace Somewhere after the fall, man sinned and ruined everything. This belief got down into our heart. And I bet you battle with it. It's the belief that if I let God rule my life, he'll ruin it. You know, all sin is your attempt to run your own life thinking that if you do it God's way, it'll be ruined. And we believe that. We believe his way will destroy us. It'll never fulfill us if we do it his way. And here's the writer of Hebrews saying, oh, no, 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 it's just the opposite. And one of my favorite lines in Dallas Willard's book, Divine Conspiracy, he says, our human life, it turns out, is not destroyed by God's life, but is fulfilled in it and in it alone. Isn't that a great line? Turns out our lives are not destroyed by God's life. They're actually fulfilled in it. That's the idea of this party. And we get to join the party. That is the concept here. And not only are they partying, but the congregation of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven are there. That's us. 
the congregation of the firstborn. The firstborns of society, if you were part of that city, if you were part of a city of like Rome, okay, um, you know that the firstborn gets all the rights and privileges. The firstborns are never overlooked. They get everything. You say, well, that's a pretty elite club and you have to be born first. What about the rest of us? Well, a lot of us feel like the others. When I was, this is hard to explain. I don't even really like talking about it much, but in the Italian family, and I guess some of them screw this up even more than others. The Italian family, firstborn grandson is like everything to the grandparents. It's treated like some weird emperor thing. And I guess some families take that to an extreme and, and mine did. So there's a number of grandkids born after me, but I was always the number one spot. My grandparents would come over to our house at Christmas and bring presents only for me. And I have two sisters in that. I'm going to tell you what it looks like to see my parents chasing their parents off the property with their presents. Because that's not going to fly in the house. But that kind of thing was woven through it all. And my poor sisters ended up being, you know, the second and the third. Never matched up. And it made their life tank. It certainly contributed to a couple of gals who never really ever found out who they were and used the city to try to find out who they were and it ruined them. It just was devastating. horrible to be that person did you read the birth order book when I was my kids were born and the kids were growing up you read the birth order book to find out what was wrong with your kids oh I see we got a middle I got it and you're you know they, he had three and then a fourth one comes around and you're like there's no book for that you're you're just screwed so you put that aside but you watch the three orders and you're like, here's what the firstborn does, here's what the middle one does, here's what the last one does. And you're like, you know, you start to see. Well, um, if, you, if you read them, <laughs> you say, remember, uh, this is how they relate based on their birth order. Here's how they see themselves and here's what they demand from others. And you're like, golly, man, you're just all messed up from the get-go. And here's God saying, you know, you, you, and you go through life accumulating what everybody has said about you. What your boss says, your parents say, your grandparents say, your friends say, even your kids say about you as parents. All accumulate to become sort of the picture of who you are. And as a result, you never really know who you are. But here's God saying, you are all firstborn. Can you imagine the wonder of that? <laughs> You're all firstborns when you come in here. Why? We weren't born first because you're attached to the firstborn son, God, Christ, in, in Hebrews 1. He's the firstborn and you're attached to him and if you're attached to him, he has given you all of the rights and privileges of being his son and none of us can compare ourselves to anyone else because spiritually speaking, there are no firstborns. You have to be given this right. Do you see that? See how that changes your identity and who you are? No, the horror of being the guy. When Gail and I were, uh, 
first married, we went to, uh, we were on a cruise. And I was working for the TV series Miami Vice at the time. 23 years old, we'd just about, just get married. And the, the uh, travel sort of gal who put all the actors and everything, we were friends, and so she sort of arranged the trip for us. And uh, she put down that we were VIPs on this cruise that we went on. So two, two nights into this thing, we get this special bouquet at our door. It says, you've been invited to sit with the captain at the captain's table tonight. And so we don't know what in the world's going on. I mean, I'm 23 years old with a perm in my hair. I'm on this ship for one thing. I was a virgin. I'm a desperate curly-haired kid. And I'm sitting at the captain's table? Okay. We show up all excited about this. We sit down, and I'm telling you literally, the whole night we felt like fish out of water. Everyone around there was just older and distinguished The captain only spoke Italian. He had a translator. And you could hear them literally conversing. The captain asking her, who are these two that got invited to this table? And we're sitting over there trying to eat and have fun. Meanwhile, knowing not only do we not deserve to be at this table, but everyone knows we don't deserve to be at this table. It's a horrible place to be until you come into God's family and you're part of the firstborn and the people who've experienced grace know this sense that it doesn't matter who rejects them in the world. It doesn't matter if they're ever at a party, if they're ever at a place, if they're ever somewhere where doesn't, no one accepts you. You've already been accepted. Your name is engraved. That's literally what the word means, in heaven, enrolled. The idea is that you're already a citizen of that place. You're registered, just like you would be in Rome, registered as a citizen engraved in heaven. Isn't that Phenomenal people who have. I heard Dallas. Listen, it's unparalleled. It would never happen in Rome. This what Jesus was saying would have. Wait, that doesn't compute. Tim Keller said this about this, and I, I, I really like. It. I can't say it any better, and so I want to say it to you. He says, "Do you realize who you are? That without this, you'll never know who you are." You cannot know who you are. Everything that's been said about you, true or untrue, some of the things you hope are true, some of the things you hope are not true, but you still are conflicted until you come to Christ and you realize who you are. And this is what he writes. This new identity from God has the power to overturn the accumulated verdicts passed on to you. The power to heal you of the deep wounds you've done to your self-image through your own failure and flaws. Or through what anybody else has ever done to you. Any abuse, any criticism, anything. Right here. If you feel like you're wearing brown at a black and white party, God says you don't ever have to feel like you're unaccepted. That's a great word. But you say, how can that be? Well, he's not finished describing what you've come to. Look what he says. You've come to God, the judge of all. Uh Uh-oh. Judgment talk again. He says, that's what the whole passage is about, is judgment. Who's going to make the cut and who isn't? And God's so holy that we can't ever come into his presence. So the question becomes, how in the world does the judge right here in the middle of this fit in? Well, at the end of the day, God gets the final say. He's the ultimate judge. 
Um, and we've already learned that all achievers don't get in. They get turned away. Well, then how in the world do we get in? Because God's still holy. And here's what he's saying. Uh, God is still holy, so how in the world did we get in? Did he turn his eyes so that we could get in? Did he look away? Did he lower the standard any? Does the standard of, of pure holiness get lowered so that we can get in? There's no trick here. The problem is a problem for you, and it's a problem for me, and it's a problem for God. Yeah, God, how are you, the burning holy fire, going to let us sinners with a rickety moral standard we've created ourselves get in? Well, we get to join the spirits, the ones who are already there, who are considered righteous. They've been made perfect. That's a passive. They didn't perfect themselves. They were made perfect. And here now we start to see what we've received what grace is about is you basically get what, was, what, what you lack, he makes up. You're complete. How does that happen? Well, he tells you. You come to Jesus. Saves that for the end. This is where you get your grace. This is how it happens. This is how Jesus, he's the mediator of a new covenant. It's a new way to God. It's the only way to God. And as the mediator of the new covenant, he has given his life on our behalf to take the justice and the judgment we deserved. And we come to his blood. That's his death. That's what makes the new plan work. The new way work is his death. And it speaks something that Abel's blood couldn't speak. Remember when Cain killed Abel? And God said, I can, I can hear the blood screaming for justice. I can hear it screaming for justice. We all know that cry because we've cried for justice ourselves. We certainly don't want a God who's not a God of justice because there are some things that, that need to be repaid. So God, please don't let go of your justice. But on the other hand, none of us will match up to the standard. So what's our, what are we going to do? God says, I'm going to solve both of those. I'm going to be just and I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to take my son and let him bear the judgment and receive my justice. I'm going to let him pay for the sin of the world. So that now my blood doesn't scream justice, it screams grace. It's a much better sound. They got to Sinai and they begged for God's voice to stop. But not here, not the people who know grace. The people who know grace have come to Christ and they recognize fully they didn't deserve to be at the party. They know very well that their identity, anybody walks in the party. You know how you sometimes at a party, maybe it's a really nice party, and you're just watching everybody, and you're looking how everybody's dressed, and yeah, they, look, they look pretty good. Look what they drove. I went to a party not long ago where everybody was, there was about 15 Bentleys in the parking lot. So from the time I got out of the car, it was a black and white affair, and we were not in black and white. 
We were not driving the same kind of vehicle, nothing. And we walked in there and you just, you just judging everybody. Like, who deserves to be here? That kind of party. And you realize it's all grace at this one. It's all grace. Achievers don't get in here. And at one fell swoop, by God punishing his son, he's able to be just. He doesn't let sinners off the hook. Secondly, he's able to love and give, give mercy to sinners. Only the cross can do that. Years ago, we had a fella here by the name of Patrick. We had a group of guys who were part of a motorcycle gang. And he gave his life to Christ here. He was actually part of the Fort Worth Club, the Banditos. Very serious, tough group of people. And our group started here called the Born Again Bikers. And he was the chaplain. And he ended up, because of his connection to that group, was the chaplain for the Banditos. And I... uh, and he wanted me to be a part of them. I did a couple funerals for him. You know, bikers died. And he wanted me connected to that group. But I, I you know, that was not an easy sell. Well, he kept working on it and working on it. And eventually, they gave me, without ever meeting me, they gave me a vest with certain patches that would allow me into their group. I still have it. And I'll never forget him saying they would like you to come to their big monthly meeting. And I'm like, what am I going to do at the biker banditos monthly meeting? <laughs> so Patrick brings me there. He says, wear this vest. So I put the vest on and I go and I show up there and everybody, I mean, there must have been a, a hundred and, uh, 150 motorcycles. And there's this, it's on Jacksboro Highway and 199 is a building you could hear the music blaring. You could see all the bikes parked. You could see a big stage in the back where they have their big meeting. And so I pull up in my Honda, <laughs> Accord, the only car. And I get out with this vest on and I'm wearing a white shirt underneath it. And literally every single person there has a black shirt under their vest. And I just stood out already. And I, my heart started beating fast and I felt so out of place that I, I literally, he'll say I was the most anxious I think I have ever been in my life. I'm looking for Patrick because God knows if I don't find him, I may not get out of here alive. <laughs> and he finds me, introduces me to a few people, and then, then leaves me. And I'm, I end up wandering into the little house Got a little bar in it, music's playing loud and porn's plastered all over the walls and I'm trying not to look and yet be invisible at the same time. It was very hard. I eventually step back outside and I'm with this group and eventually the meeting starts and I am so uncomfortable. And, you know, they got a big guy that guards everybody and then they have, you know, then the, the main guy, you know, they're... they're Leader gets up there and he speaks and then different and the chaplain speaks. And the chaplain was Patrick. And again, everybody's smoking and they got chains and I'm wearing sneakers and they're wearing boots and I just looked like a sad, sad, sad case. He gets up there and he's talking and he says, hey, 
everybody. I'm going to ask my pastor, if he would, to come up here on this stage. And I'm going to tell you right now, I was going to kill him. (laughs) And he said, I came to Christ in his church. He let me ride my motorcycle on their stage one Sunday morning. As I did over there, we had a, it was an object lesson. Well, as I started walking up there, he said, so please give him a hand. And all these bikers (laughs) clapping for me. I've never seen him before. I don't know him. I don't fit in. I look like I don't fit in. And I had to speak. And I can't even remember what I said. I was so scared. And I just realized what it's like to be standing before God one day without one shred of deserving to be in his presence. And the only merit I can draw from was that he knows me. Your son knows me. That's all I got. I got nothing else. You know, I I guess if they'd have pressed me, I could have said, you know, when I was in middle middle school, I had a mini bike. (laughs) You know, I'd draw from something, right? Wouldn't you? You'd say, you know, I tried smoking under the house when I was in second grade. (laughs) I used to write on myself too when I was a kid a lot. (laughs) Doing everything I could to fit in. Do you think God wants to hear that? All he needs to know is that I'm there because his son. And I'm there solely on the merit of someone else. Not my own merit. Let me say again. C.S. Lewis said, you walk a razor's edge. A razor's edge. Become you know, either be a, an immortal horror or an everlasting splendor. An achiever or a receiver. Do you know that, Grace? Does anything I said to you sound familiar? Because if you don't, let me repeat. There is no greater mission in life than to learn how to receive that overwhelming grace.